Since Donald Trump took over as president in 2017, the United States has been retreating from the world, and from the Indo-Pacific region more specifically. Most notably, the country has backed out from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the nuclear agreement with Iran, and the Paris Climate Agreement. How do countries in the Indo-Pacific region see the diminishing role of the United States on the global and regional stage? Korea Economic Institute Senior Director Troy Stangerone spoke with Professor Gordon Flake on the views from Australia, one of America's closest and oldest allies in the Western Pacific. He explains why the Trump administration's isolation has been particularly concerning to Australia and what roles middle powers like Australia and South Korea have taken up in America's absence. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute in Washington, D.C., you're listening to Korean Context. Gordon is the founding CEO of the Perth USA Center at the University of Western Australia. He's one of Australia's leading authorities on the Indo-Pacific, with a particular specialization on Korea, having spent nearly three decades focused on the Korean Peninsula and Northeast Asia. Gordon, in contrast to the last major crisis, you know, a little more than a decade ago, the Great Recession that we went through, we've seen a decline in international cooperation with COVID-19. Early in the crisis, countries in the EU placed restrictions on necessary medical exports to countries, even within the EU. Other countries have placed export restrictions on medical supplies as well. And in some cases, some countries have placed restrictions on exports of food. From your perspective in Australia, how have the broader set of international institutions performed during this crisis? Well, I think this crisis is, rather than causing a further deterioration of those international institutions, has revealed their underlying weakness. And if you think about the decade between the, the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, and where we are right now, really what is missing here is leadership, primarily United States leadership at the top of that, but also a much greater chasm between the United States and its principal geostrategic rival, China. Over the course of a decade, that really has served to undermine almost each and every one of these institutions that we're thinking about and referring to. If you think back to the global financial crisis, again, despite the fact that the United States itself was hit hard, it was very proactive in leading the resistance to some of the things that we've been seeing in the last couple of days. It led the resistance to protectionism, to raising borders. In the most recent scenario, to be honest, the United States has been one of the most egregious offenders at making sure that it took care of its own interests first in terms of gaining both health materials, et cetera. And they haven't been the voice for the institutions like the World Trade Organization. As you might imagine, this comes as a great concern to Australia. Australia, probably more than any other U.S. ally, is a full-throated defender of multilateralism and international institutions. Uh, And that goes to the core of what Australia is. Australia is a country that is far from its historical base in, in the United Kingdom, has relied since World War II on a close alliance relationship with the United States for its national security. But underneath all of that, its primary strategy has been to support something they call the rules-based order. What the U.S. would refer to as the post-World War II liberal international order. But for Australians, this is not just a vague concept. It really is a national strategy. So multilateralism, regional organizations, the rule of law, making sure that might does not make right. That's a fundamental part of Australian foreign policy, Australian national strategy. And so to see what we've seen in the wake of COVID-19, the further deterioration of that is a deep concern, which is why you will have seen 
a real divergence between Australia and the United States, despite the fact that they're very close treaty allies on the World Trade Organization, on the World Health Organization, on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And so what you're seeing is a clear divergence based on a reversal of what has been the traditional U.S. role. Now, I'd like to sort of dig a little deeper into this. But I think one of the paradoxes that we see in the situation, you know, not just in contrast to the Great Recession, but to much of the post-World War II period, is that one of the lessons out of all of those, you know, decades was that solving transnational problems was both in the interest of the United States and benefited the United States. And so in this idea that the way the U.S. has approached COVID-19, that we can take and best protect the U.S. by not cooperating almost seems paradoxical to the learned lessons of the past. And, you know, we see this in terms of, you know, medical supplies, medical information by, you know, cutting things off. It seems as though we're actually making it more difficult on ourselves to solve this rather than actually helping to ease the process. I think the average Aussie, and I would include myself on those numbers right now, remains bewildered by the U.S. actions. The United States' inherent strength has always been that it doesn't stand alone and that it's not just a sole superpower by itself, that it has a network, not just of alliance partnerships, but international institutions that it was involved in the creation of and has been highly influential in the leading of. And so for the United States to, again, to one by one denigrate diminish, withdraw from those institutions, it makes no sense. The U.S. is is fundamentally throwing away its inherent advantages in what really is a contest in the global stage. But again, that's what the United States has done. Part of that is driven by individuals. Part of that is a longstanding approach, I think, from one particular side of American politics. Uh, But it is a concern here in Australia and I think elsewhere in the region. And I think when you look about how you solve this, one of the industries that's been hit hardest is the airline industry. You know, the question of who can fly, is it safe, and where can you travel to? And to ease the challenges for businesses, you'd think you would want one international standard that sort of laid out when it was safe for countries to open, how they'd reopen, what the process would be, rather than sort of the patchwork ad hoc system we have to where now, you know, Americans are actually locked out of a lot of countries, and that makes it difficult for the U.S. industry. The way you do that would be the WHO, but that's the institute that we have gone after the most. And I'm not saying the WHO has handled this crisis in a stellar fashion, but rather than being productive multilaterally, we have actually hurt ourselves, it seems like. That's right. You're you're spot on. And what you've described in a microcosm really is the fundamental rationale behind globalization as a whole, right? That things are done much more efficiently if we can have common standards common approaches, common information, common understandings in terms of that process. I won't claim that Australia has figured it out. Obviously, Australia has had a far different experience with the COVID-19 virus than the United States has. But even here, you know, we're in a bubble within a bubble. I'm in the state of Western Australia, which remains closed off from the rest of Australia, just because obviously there's ongoing concerns. And so your reference to travel is very important. We haven't quite figured it out yet. how we're going to enable travel between Western Australia and South Australia, Western Australia and Queensland, uh, particularly with a a recent, although compared to the United States, minuscule outbreak in the state of Victoria. But you're absolutely correct. Whether you're talking about something arcane in in trade, like rules of origin certificates, or the standardization or the containerization of trade, the broader process of globalization has required that common understanding 
common rules, transparency in that process. And right now we are suffering because of the lack thereof. Although again, going back to your first question, it isn't nearly as bad as people feared. In the early days of the crisis, it looked like things might fall apart completely. And we haven't seen that yet. And I'm hopeful that it will not. On that hopeful note, I'd like to maybe turn a little bit more specifically to the future of institutions and Australia's role. Despite not being a great power or a superpower like the United States, Australia has actually played an important role in institution building in the past, be it either through things such as the creation of APEC or the Carnes Group. More recently, Australia worked with Japan to sort of keep the TPP alive and actually get it over the hump. As we sort of look to the future, if the U.S. does end up playing a lesser role internationally in the development or maintenance of institutions, and this reluctance, I think, for trying to at least take on that role, what role could you see Australia playing in reforming or creating new institutions? This is a dynamic that's not limited to Australia. Over the last decade, you have seen most other countries in the world concerned about the rising influence of China, particularly as it has proved to be more maligned than not. And in recent years, particularly over the last four years, a real spike in concern about the reliability of the United States, even further concerns about the potential decline of the United States as a global rule maker and institution builder. And in that context, you've seen Japan, you've seen India, you've seen the EU as a whole, Germany individually, the UK, France, All of them are looking for partners. They're all looking for friends because we're in an era of uncertainty. I think one thing that's clear here in Australia and is probably clear to every one of those other capitals I just mentioned is that as of yet, there really is no replacement for the United States. You rightly referenced that Australia has had a long history of being at least on a regional level, an institution builder. I would argue that if you look back the last 30 years, there isn't a single regional initiative where Australia wasn't there first, and here's the key, actively lobbying for the United States participation. So you mentioned APEC, the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Initiative. That's certainly the case there. You can look at the East Asia Summit. Again, Australia there first, actively lobbying for the United States to get in. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, again, the US decision to withdraw from that is in my mind, one of the greatest travesties of the last three years. But once again, proving your point, Australia and Japan, both treaty allies of the United States, collectively recognize the need for these countries at least to hold the line. So they did something that I thought was impossible, which was to resurrect the TPP in the form of the Comprehensive and Progressive Partnership for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP. But all of those are just placeholders. They're just holding the line in the hopes that the United States come back. I don't think that there's anyone in Tokyo or in Canberra or in Seoul or in Delhi that thinks that absent a proactive U.S. role, that these initiatives in and of themselves will be sufficient. So really what we're seeing is a little bit of rear guard action, a little bit of just kind of holding the line, a lot of waiting for Godot. I think you're right. There's certain things that other states can do, but ultimately, It's all partially a resource capacity issue, and you need someone with those resources and capacity to take and, even if not play a leadership role, to be positive and helpful in that process. Because I I do think other countries can take the lead, but without the backing of a country like the United States, it's difficult to get the cooperation, the results I think that you're looking for. 
And the good news is, and again, you know well, I started in Washington, D.C. over 30 years ago now at the Korea Economic Institute. And my view or my prism on alliances was really Korea versus Japan. I understood that there was something qualitatively different about the U.S. relationships with the U.K., with Australia, with New Zealand, with Canada. Didn't fully understand what we call the Five Eyes relationship, which is that legal underpinning for intelligence sharing and close cooperation. But having moved here over six and a half years ago, I understand that Australia occupies in Asia in particular a unique role in that because the level of trust is so close between the United States and Australia, that Australia is able to heavily influence U.S. thinking on the region, policies towards the region, activities in the region. So even in the Trump era, you've seen the United States articulate an Indo-Pacific strategy. Five years after that has been the primary push by Australia, then followed by Japan and India. Those things will continue. But again, I still think there's a great deal of hoping here that the United States will return to form, to return to some degree of sanity. And here I probably would push (laughs) the question back on you because I'm somewhat joking, Troy, saying that there's never been a better time to be in the farthest city on the planet on land away from Washington, D.C. You're still in Washington itself. I welcome your thoughts as to at what point the United States is going to be able to resume its previous role or ever that will be the case. I'm always afraid of phrases like never and ever because I think things can be highly improbable or highly unlikely. So I wouldn't say that we won't ever return to that role. But I do think, you know, one of the challenges that we face in the United States is we need to have a hard reckoning internally about certain issues and how we're going to perceive and be involved in the world. Um, And what I mean by that is, is, you know, has China has become more influential globally, you know, that's become a situation of greater awareness in the United States. Now, national security strategy versus China has great power competition. But the question is sort of, in my mind, what does that mean and how do you approach it? I think when you look at much of at least the initial U.S. approach to this potential challenge from China, it's been almost how do we replicate what China has done? We go in, we look more, there's more talk about, you know, this U.S. government becoming involved in the economy and pushing certain industries. You know, we're seeing this specifically in 5G, but maybe not necessarily in the way China has done it. And that in itself is, I think, a good thing that we're not taking the same Chinese approach necessarily, but also in the sense of, you know, trying to maximize U.S. gains, not necessarily treating our allies with the type of cooperation that you would expect. And so you mentioned early on, the U.S. great strength was that it had these allies and institutions. In a competition with China, it seems to me, you know, how do you take on China and maybe hopefully in the long run try to shape China's choices if we end up, you know, in essence, treating our friends and allies the way that China treated them? That means then you're taking, you're basically lessening the tools that you have to not just influence China, but influence broader policy internationally. So I think we need to have a broader discussion about how we really handle the China. I think we need to have a broader discussion about what we view our role in the world as being. And I think, to be honest, we also need to have a broader discussion about how we do or don't embrace ideas from abroad, because I think that there's sort of a push of an insularity almost developing. And, you know, we, I think one of the great strengths of America, be it either through immigration in the past or other things, is that as a country, we're willing to look abroad and say, this works really well, we're going to do that. 
And I feel like there's much more of sort of a, well, it's not our idea, so it can't be a good idea. And I think we need to sort of have much greater thought and concentration on how we're going to not just manage China, but our own approach, our own openness to ideas and opportunities that is presented around the world by other partners and countries. So can I push you a little bit on that notion of U.S. insularity? Because this is really interesting to me. Again, having spent 25 years in Washington and now six and a half years in Perth, on the one hand, everything that you said is absolutely a deep concern in Australia as elsewhere in the region. American treatment of allies the very public spate with South Korea over cost-sharing, burden-sharing, which is this year rolling over to Japan, open denigration of NATO and European allies, very overt tax on Canada, et cetera, as well as the institutions we're talking before, have kind of shaken some. And then you add to that moves like, you know, just overtly just kind of mean actions. Decision on the part of the United States, ICE, to require all foreign students studying in the U.S. if those schools have gone to online to leave immediately. They just smack of a very anti-foreign type of approach. And yet, if I'm optimistic, and this is what I've been trying to tell my Australian colleagues, is that if you look underneath that, certainly representative of this current administration, but not where the United States is. Last week, I saw a remarkable poll that came out from Gallup that said for the first time in history, more Americans said we need more immigration than that said we need less immigration, 34 to 28%. Never happened before ever, right? So even in this current environment, even in this of all this, more Americans say we need more immigration. Chicago Council on Global Affairs over the last four years has tracked a steady increase in American support for free trade, including those core questions about it benefits me, my communities, my country more broadly. The International Republican Institute showed that in the midst of, of Trump's attacks on NATO, historic high levels of support for NATO. And so I'm just kind of hoping, and again, this may be a little bit Pollyannish, that the underlying body politic in America basically says, we're not the bad guys. We're not the racists. We're not the anti-foreigns. So that is building a potential, depending on the outcome of the election in November, for kind of a snapback. Now, I temper that optimism with my fear that while the U.S. may be more willing, it will certainly be less capable just given the budgetary calamity which is being brought about by the economic consequences of the COVID-19 virus. But as you see, I'm wrestling with it, but you see it up close. One of the polls that struck me recently, Yahoo and YouGov did a poll where they asked Americans, do you view the United States as a shining city upon a hill? You know, Reagan's idea that we are a model for others to emulate. And well, they asked basically the question in two phases. One, did you think it was correct when Reagan said it? And two, do you think it's correct now? I think 52% of our member thought it was when Reagan said it. So a majority of Americans looking back did think that in the past we were an example for other countries. But today, 62% of Americans think we're not. And I think, you know, a lot of the trends, you know, on trade and other things that you talked about, I've seen it in Pew polling as well, are heading in a positive direction. But we have right now, I think, this challenge politically to where there is a hardening of positions. And one of the things that I think is interesting about the last few years is, is that Donald Trump in his first campaign was able to identify and tap into a lot of long-term stresses that a lot of Americans in terms of their jobs and other things had been built into. But if the Republican Party at the time he came 
was sort of out of touch perhaps with its base, if you will. It seems as though in a lot of ways, the current administration is increasingly out of touch with the United States. One of the things I'd like to sort of get back to is we haven't talked about South Korea yet, really. And, you know, obviously your initial background, as you mentioned, you know, was working on South Korea and a KAI specifically. So in terms of global institutions and even perhaps building them or helping to shape them, South Korea is much newer to this type of role. But what kind of potential or advantage do you think South Korea might have during this time of uncertainty? Harkening back to the previous period of uncertainty under the Lee Myung-bak administration after the global financial crisis, South Korea took a remarkably important role. In that era, you know, they hosted the Nuclear Security Summit. They were very instrumental in mobilizing an international rejection of the protectionist kind of tendencies that are out there post-financial crisis. And were very, very important in the construction of the G20 as a more functioning body in terms of global governance. Again, very active in the East Asia Summit. One of my great worries over the last three years, particularly with developments in inter-Korean relations, is that Korea, which had been global for the better part of 20 years, has been in a relatively short period of time, very narrowly peninsular. In other words, they've abandoned their global role. They're not proactive in the same way. So Korea has not been a signatory to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It has not been a driving force behind RCEP. It has not been active on the global stage in any way, shape, or form in this form. They've become strictly peninsular. And if you look at this from an Australian perspective, Korea has been, and in the future should be, a really important partner. We have very similar GDPs. We're both in the G20. Both Korea and Australia early on cooperated very closely in a middle power grouping within the G20 called MICTA, and both of them saw the ability to influence that. Uh, In recent years, Australia has been scrambling to kind of hold the line on that rules-based order referred to at the beginning, but Korea is missing in action. And I would say Korea is not only missing in action, it is missed. It's not just a small little country. It's one of the top 20 economies in the world in terms of capability and the sheer capacity of its citizenry is a country with tremendous soft power, tremendous influence. And so I would love to see Korea being proactive in the South Pacific. I would love to see Korea have an Indo-Pacific strategy and be thinking about the Indian Ocean. I would love to see Korea addressing these issues that we discussed earlier on where Australia made, but right now, Australia looks at Japan as a key partner It looks at India as a key partner. It increasingly welcomes back France and and Great Britain into this region. It looks at at Germany in that light. And but Korea is just not playing the way it could. And so I fear that Korea is not living up to its potential. And that's a travesty, not just for Korea. It's a travesty for the region. We need Korea because Korea is so universally respected and admired. But the fact that they're not playing right now is their loss and our loss as well. I think you're right. The Korea's a lot of potential. I think there is a little bit of shift that we're seeing with COVID-19 and how they're handling some of the healthcare issues. And they've reached out to countries. They've done a lot in terms of uh, donations of test kits and other medical supplies to sort of some of the poorer countries. But I do think you're right that there is a much bigger role they can play. And at the same time, within that context, I think one of the things that you know, I sometimes try to emphasize to you know, my South Korean colleagues is, is that 
there is a connection between South Korea's role in the world and what is obviously their primary concern, which is North Korea, and that the more they're engaged with other partners, when that time comes in the long term with North Korea, be it, you know, either through a consensual reunification or something that is more challenging, that they're more likely to be able to draw on that goodwill of other countries by having sort of worked with them now through other challenges. So I think that's one of the things to keep in mind for Korea. I could not agree with you more on that. And if you recall at the beginning of our conversation, I was talking about how I found it bewildering, and most Aussies find it bewildering, that the United States has jettisoned its fundamental strategic advantages in terms of networks and alliances and institutions. I feel the same way about South Korea. Under the current administration, it has been so intensely focused on inter-Korean relations, and I understand why. They faced a very existential threat at the beginning of the moon term because of fire and fury such as the world has never known, all, little rocket man, all that kind of stuff. I get that, right? But at the same time, you're absolutely correct. Korea is a global player and it needs to be a global player. And that global system of partnerships and roles and responsibilities can only be helpful as it thinks about unification, as it thinks about dealing with North Korea. And again, looking at it from an Aussie perspective, when you're talking about rules-based order, Rules-based order also deals with national security. It deals with the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the Missile Technology Control Regime, all the things that North Korea's actions are doing, which themselves directly undermine Australia's national security. So I would love to see a much more vibrant and internationally engaged Korea in the context of the challenges on the Korean Peninsula. That's it for the episode today. Many thanks to Gordon Flake, Troy Stangerone, and to you listeners for tuning in. If you enjoyed the conversation, please rate and leave us a comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. They help other people find Korean context. We have an exciting upcoming event at KAI next week. Former National Intelligence Officer for North Korea, Marcus Garlaskis, will join us for a conversation on how COVID-19 has become a factor in North Korea's engagement with the United States and what the impending U.S. presidential election means for negotiations going forward. You can find the RSVP in the description of this episode. Hope to see you there.